and the herd ran in fear. And the dark ones, children of the worm, walked the streets in the day. I turned my head from the sight. The phoenix told me, this is as it shall be, but not as it should. The phoenix left me then. Now I cannot dream. I can only remember the signs, each one in perfect detail. These are the last days. May Gaia have mercy on us. 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade presents Werewolf the Apocalypse, a review podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade presents Werewolf the Apocalypse. Um, I'm Nick. Today joining me is Chris. Hey everyone, how you doing? So uh, today we're going to go over a uh, a bit of a uh, an interesting read. We're going to go over the Werewolf Players Guide, and uh, and it's a bit of a of a thicker book, and it's it's interesting. But just taking a look back through it, and uh, and reading some of these early revisions, and uh, and kind of seeing where things go, and just the uh, the in depth knowledge that they that they dropped in this book alone for the players was uh, was pretty interesting to me. Um, but uh, I guess we got to get going because we got a thick book to read through. So, Chris, uh, take it away with the legends. What uh, what happens in our story this time? So, in our prelude story, it's titled "Appropriate Legends of the Garu." And what makes this story very interesting, and I thought was very appropriate, is it follows the story regarding uh, a Garu whose name is Black Mane that breaks the spiral as he speaks to a pup, and he's caught off guard because uh, the the pup is pretty much asking, like, "Why do Garu run in packs?" And um, he tells a very harrowing tale regarding his own personal experiences. And I think what makes it really great is, especially for those of you who haven't had the opportunity to read the story is it, it talks about um, hubris, hubris in the fact that this particular Garu, when he was younger, felt that just because he was able to go through the, 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 the rites of passage, he didn't need a pack. Hubris in the fact that he was able to change at will and he could throw his weight around quite literally to say that he didn't have to fear any mortal or creature otherwise. Um, and hubris in the sense that he just didn't need anyone at all outside of his friends, his human friends. Uh, lo and behold, an incident happens in which um, his hubris takes hold. And he gets drunk on vodka with his friends and wakes up with a hangover, hangs out with them. And there was always <laughs> uh, they always rang by gangs like this must have been happening sometime probably in the 70s from the way he describes it. You got to imagine to yourself like this warrior type ordeal. It was it was the spiders versus the silver snakes. <laughs> and um, <laughs> when the silver snakes come by, you know, he, he becomes Billy Badass and he's like, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and scare these folks. I'm going to go ahead and, and shift to my Krenos form. And that should be more than enough to go ahead and take them down. Why wouldn't you? Um, You're a werewolf now. <laughs> You're a werewolf. Why wouldn't you have to worry about it? And you know what? The, the reasoning behind that was is because he thought the delirium would be able to take care of everything. So he'll scare them off. All they know is something bad happened. He'll stay behind his buddies so that they don't see him shift. What he didn't anticipate were that the silver snakes actually had two budding black spiral dancers and their friends from Mori shift in front of them as well. And uh, the tale quickly turns sour here, folks, because um, he watches his friends get ripped apart. Um, he earns his fair share of battle scars, in fact, to the point where he even mentions that from how it's uh, explained that he was gelded and yep. he ain't going to have any pups of his own. Um, and fortunately, you know, he had wished he had died at that point, but he was very fortunate enough to have, you know, his, his pack finally show up or at least a group that would become eventually his pack come and save him. And ever since that moment in time, it goes to show that you can't run alone. And it stresses the importance of the fact that when he's talking to this pup, he goes like, hey, how do you feel about your family? And she goes, well, I, I don't know them too well. We're just so distant. He's like, that's probably for the better. Because what you'll come to notice, young child, or young pup, I should say, is that 
you can't be among humans because they know that you're a beast inside. Right? You have that predator running in you. You can't be among the wolves because they also feel the predators. So you don't fit in either world, but you belong in your own. And so the reason why you want to be around other Garu is because they're the only other folks that will understand you in the way that you understand yourself. And I thought that was pretty, pretty potent. It was also really cool how at the end, he pretty much adopts her. Um, and even though he has no, you know, no children of his own, this is this is a way for him to grow. And I thought the story in terms of like giving you a reason to actually run with a pack was really cool. It was very tight that way. I call that stick in the landing, like in, in the biggest way, because you're not really sure where the, where the story is going to go. And then at the end, he just like sinks it home. And he's like, yeah, you know, we, we run in packs, you know, because we want a family and no one else will have us, you know, so we only have ourselves. It, it's great. It was. It was. I, I thought it was one of the better ones to read. And that was my first reading of it as well. So you're getting fresh perspective from me, folks. <laughs> so uh, kicking on over, uh, we jump into chapter one. They give us a lot of cool new stuff in this book. Like, uh, I, I know this this had to have been a popular book when it was dropped just because of the sheer amount of uh of new content that they delivered in the in the form of uh these these personality archetypes for one which are basically just natures and demeanors from vampire and they just yeah. twisted them a bit and made them made them werewolf they did and a couple of cool things about this is as we were nick had mentioned before rather was that this came out before the official second edition of werewolf came out so this was the transitionary period just as vampire was also getting into that position as well so to introduce certain things like these archetypes um, there's a couple in there that you've normally seen before, you know, like Bravo, Caregiver, Competitor, but there were a couple of them that were just werewolf-centric, right? So you have your Alpha, you have your Cub, you have your Lone Wolf. Um, you have uh, one of my other favorites that they mentioned in here was like the Reluctant Garu is actually an archetype. So I thought that was also pretty yeah. cool that they have their own uh, rather than the standard vampire ones. It almost made me wonder like if, if vampire in future editions could have gone that route as well. But that was really cool to see. Yeah, yeah. And that also takes us... Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I was about to say that probably eats us into our merits and flaws, which kind of just builds off of that. But you were saying that. Go ahead. But man, I um walking into the merits and flaws section, I saw some things that just blew me away. Right. Like what? Uh, self-confident. Uh, you can spend a willpower for an auto success. And uh, as long as you're successful, you, you gain it back. You know, like as long as you roll a success and that positive, you just gain that willpower right back. You just don't yep, lose like willpower for spending willpower for auto successes. Yep. It's it's insane. That was uh that was definitely one of them. For me, it actually came across in the form of a flaw. So I was taking a look at the original versions of how Cursed was worked out. So it's a one to five point flaw, but the way that it was kind of scaled out made me like raise an eyebrow a bit. So one of them was like uh level one or one point cursed flaw. If you pass on a secret that was told to you, your betrayal will harm you later in some way. And yet somehow the two point version of this flaw is you stutter uncontrollably when you attempt to describe what you have seen or heard. Yeah. I'm, I'm attempting to try to figure out how Chris must you be to have a stutter versus passing on a secret that somehow supernaturally gets back to you for a point. That's some. Well, it's not that's uh, some what it, it's not <laughs> so much a, a stutter as it is a particular stutter about that particular information. What you're cursed with is not being able to spread that information back. That's that's the curse. The, the burden of of holding knowledge you need to unburden yourself of. I see. All right. I took it a different way. So I'm glad that you were able to clarify that one, because for a second, I was going to say that's some old bullshit. But <laughs> no, no, that- no, I hear you. Like, a, a stutter's not that bad. I, it, you know, yeah. it's just not. But the, the having that like, oh, if you found out someone was a black spiral dancer and you couldn't tell anybody, no way, no matter how you tried to pass that information along, it just the words wouldn't come out. The, the glyphs wouldn't write from your fingertips. Oh, that's a terrible curse. That is true. That is true. 
Um, other things that we also saw here as well, folks, was the um, they did a good job of at least listing what types of you know uh, merits and flaws to be taking a look at your mental, your physical. Yep. Um, they also actually put in Garo appropriate flaws and uh, humane or human appropriate flaws as well. Um, that would actually work out in your favor. One of them even being like a CEO or having the the pull of being able to hit on a CEO corporate. Yeah. Um, corporation, I should say. That's a five point merit. It's pretty chunky, but at least it's pretty cool that you do have that option there. I got. I okay. So what are your thoughts on the planetary aspects thing? The planetary aspects of the Garo. This is my first just time. To, actually just kind of fill you in quick, folks. So the planetary aspects is just this uh, this idea that, you know, like uh, the position of the of the planets has just as much impact on you as the position of the stars. So celestial bodies like Mars, Venus, Mercury, all that stuff, whether they're ascending, descending or whether they're they're high up there, like all those uh, have these different, uh, you know, uh, impacts on on your life. Go, go ahead, mm-hmm. DJ. Sorry for interrupting. No, no, you're right. It was uh, it's worth mentioning. But I think. I think it was actually relevant because we start having conversations later editions about like the red star being in the sky. But what does it mean to have a red star in the sky? How does this portent, if at all, actually work within the society of Garu? We talk about, you know, the separate entities outside of Gaia, as well as like the other planets being their own entities in and of themselves. Uh, of course, you know, described in different ways. But I thought that it was a nice flavor to have. And especially because these are merits um, that you could have that kind of work to or against you. Um, I, I didn't see them out of place. I just thought it was kind of curious that they did have them and then it just kind of went away. Uh, one thing that did come into play was there was a line uh, for under like eclipses, comets, meteors and constellations. They mentioned that, you know, these these types of events, it's literally written here, say they don't go underneath notice of the Garu. Like it's important for them to do so. Definitely the stargazers. We understand that. Yeah. But you could also imagine any other tribe would be able to look up into the stars, rather stars, and be able to take in. Um, you know, what portents and divinations they might be able to take away from it. Because werewolves are like that. They're very spiritual. Uh, they're very mystical as it is. They're, they could read into anything. And I don't see why it wouldn't be something they could take advantage of. Yeah, I, I found it super interesting. There's definitely some super powerful things in here, some not so impactful things, but there's merits and flaws in here that can be crippling or um, or extremely bolstering. So I'm curious to see if this stuff carries on. I know, I know from V20, I haven't seen it, but I'm just kind of... I'm curious to see like where the where the where the cutoff point was for that. Um, carrying on though, it, it takes us through some new ideas for metas deformities. Um, these are all kind of uh, fun and interesting. We go, we get new abilities. Uh, Kalindo shows up in here um, as a as a set of dots you can take. Same thing with worm lore, archery, things like that. But they had a new background, uh, familiar spirit, which I thought was uh, was pretty cool. Right, so this is a. A companion spirit that follows you around, and you're able to inject gnosis, rage, and will into it um, based on how many dots you have, and it basically functions like a battery. Um, mechanically, I think that's uh, a, it's useful. Um, maybe a little bit boring, but uh, I think there's a lot you could do there with telling a story between your relationship with a with a familiar spirit. I don't. What are your thoughts? That is. It's a pack mule. Let's be real about that. <laughs> that's exactly what mule. it is. It's like I'm going to be walking around. <laughs> It'd be like, hey, I, I need to store this type of energy. Come here. All right. You're my buddy. But at the same token, here, put this on your back. I'm going to need a little bit of uh, gnosis and rage. And uh, you hold on to that willpower. Yeah, we I'll, make might your, uh, I'll make your load lighter when I need to. But until then, I mean, it, outside of joshing on it, though, it is a very cool background to have. Um, I like it more um, than we normally would see in the future in terms of ancestors. Although, granted, it, it, it completely approaches a different aspect of it and it has a different mechanical function. But to see this, you could start seeing where you would start taking a look 
uh, more towards in the future of personal totems where your spirituality um, starts coming more into play and how uh, you don't just rely on regular humans in terms of retainers, allies, contacts. This is really cool to tap into yeah. on the other end of the field. It, it definitely uh, it, it gives you that that same kind of, uh, um, you know, like familiarity, but with the spirit world, hence familiar spirit and kind of self-explanatory in the name. We get new gifts, though. Um, what I saw right off the bat that 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 struck me was uh, they had camp specific gifts in here. And I was like, oh, well, maybe we're going to get a great lowdown on camps coming up in the future. And we do. But let's let's not pay. Like, we have to also take a look at, like, the first couple of sentences for new gifts. Right. So, number one, this is the werewolf's player's guide. However, the sentence well, the sentence specifically speaks below are some of the new gifts. They are all more rare than those listed in your werewolf rulebook. And a storyteller should feel free to give players a hard time in teaching them. But if it's a player's guide and you put it in there, why wouldn't you make it at same or equal level to teach? Yeah, I I think that might be a lessons learned, you know, it, when you uh, because you write a book like the player's guide specifically for the player. Right. The, there's some stuff in here that's maybe not 100 percent for the player. Maybe it's maybe it's more like leaning toward stuff for the ST. But the player's guide obviously should be gifts that the players should be freely capable of using. I mean, otherwise, uh, why why have the book if, if everything you see in here is going to be an argument between you and your storyteller? You know, like, oh, you can't find someone to teach you that gift. It's too rare. You mean like tongues? Oh, that's one of the <laughs> ones I would like. I, 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 hit me with Nick it. and I were having a conversation about this. But so Hamid gift tongues at this point uh, is a level three gift that allows you to um, read and write any language that has been encountered, no matter how obscure or long forgotten. And uh, you make a, an intelligence and linguistics role and you spend one willpower point. Difficulty depends, uh, you know, depends on the rarity of the language. Something as easy as French might be a difficulty four. But something as crazy as like ancient Sumerian would be a level 10. So if this is a level three gift for werewolves, yeah. why would it be like that's some incredible stuff to be able to purchase a gift just to have like earshot of hell to be able to 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 decipher ancient Sumerian. At that point, you know, like what was sure that was uh, that was one of the ones that caught me off guard. Were there any that you found like outstanding and or tilted your head at Nick? No, honestly, uh, I, I didn't spend a lot of time on on gifts because, um, well, gifts are. I, I'm weird. I, I don't think gifts are super awesome. Not when it comes to comparing them to rights. And the rights section is what nailed me down as uh, as where all the cool stuff was. Like the the mm. right of the stolen wolf, where you can rip somebody's wolf away from them. Oh, brutal. That is pretty potent. And in fact, it, this section, to be honest, gave me more of a reason to like the, the rights as we currently have, because... Um, a lot of the rights that are normally written in your core rule books are just to kind of get you all off the ground. So, you know, cleansing, purification, et cetera. Um, but here they kind of give you a little bit more in terms of what the, the strength and potency of the rights are that you pick up. So having it in a player's guide for the first time as it shows up is really, really awesome. The one that stood out to me um, was definitely one that was from a camp for the eaters of the dead right. Of course right it did. Striders. Of course it, it did. stuck it like, out. How, how, what's weird about it? Why would it stick out in your mind, DJ? Because uh, it's a level four, it's a level four, a uh, right, right of the door in wisdom in which silent striders pretty much are able to gnaw on people's brains so long as it hasn't been completely decomposed to be able to glean knowledge off of it. Um, this doesn't come without, you know, <laughs> it doesn't come without consequences because unfortunately for them, they don't know that this right as it was created was originally corrupted by the worm. Um, and so the more that they do this, um, there's a very big possibility if they do it more times than they have, you know, their permanent gnosis uh, that they'll get corrupted. 
So it is a definitely interesting situation there. I think one of the funniest parts about this is towards the end, it goes like, yeah, you could get this from Garu. You could eat the brain of Garu, mummies. <laughs> uh, but if you, you could also try this from a torpid vampire. But the moment you start gnawing on his head dome, uh, he's going to wake up. And then that's a different story altogether. So I thought that was pretty LOL to kind of throw out there. Yeah, right. And it's, uh, can you imagine that? The, uh, the, poor, the poor vampire that fell into torpor just to be gnawed on by the teeth of a, of a werewolf and turn to ash. Ugh. Yeah, it's a good thing they, they added in the MacGuffin that he snaps awake and, and then it's game on. Good fun. Yeah, it is. Otherwise, it'd be a tool P in one sense or another. But I wanted to, uh, I want to talk about the tribes in here for, I want to spend some time on it. Because uh, to date, this is pretty much the best we see um, as far as when it comes to the theme and moods of the tribes in, in any of the books that we've seen so far. Uh, it kicks off with, uh, with these entries. And they have basic, uh, basic sections to them, like the, the first part. And not all sections have all of these, but they will have most of these. Legendry, uh, which is the tribal legends of the past. So it's written from the tribe perspective of uh, the, the past, according to them, which you get some, some great insights and, and cool stories here. And obviously, some things will roll your eyes, depending on uh, tribes that you favor or don't favor um, and, and kind of what their opinions on how things were. You get a history of the tribe, you get their hierarchy and kind of how they're organized and some basic ideas with how their names are set up, you know, like uh, common people from that tribe, how they would name themselves. And then it does give you a section where it goes through the different camps of the tribe, which is uh, always an interesting read. And they talk about camps for a bit on uh, why you'd want camps and, you know, the cool benefits from camps. And, and they can definitely be fun. But I want to start off with uh, with the Black Furies. Uh, because in here it gives you the it gives you the straight history of them and uh, and talks about what's great and cool about the Black Furies. Not just that they hate men, but the awesome stuff in here about how they they handle their male offspring and they pass them on to the children of Gaia and how they carry the burden of their male metis, you know, and 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 keep them with them as secondhand citizens, but they're still there. But you also see what they're good at, and that's the they have the five treasures of Artemis. And Artemis is just their word for Luna, right? Uh, Luna appears to them as in an aspect as as Artemis, and so you get to see uh, they have these uh, really cool treasures that that Luna has given them that they they carry down, and it's all shrouded in secrecy that only the most uh, inner members of the tribe know about um, really what they do. But these are supposed to be like legendary artifacts of uh, of Luna and stuff like that. But what they have are Two talons of the worm, which we've talked about previously. The people who like belly up to the table and take care of the worm when it's at its most dangerous tend to be the Black Furies. Now, uh, everybody, mm-hmm. I've, everybody who's been listening so far knows that uh, that Bob and I are are pretty big Get fanboys, and and we love that to be like the the crazy Viking Lord, uh, you know, Get that show up and and just handle business. But the Black Furies are probably the uh, the strongest bolster against against the worm that they have, you know, as a written so far at this point. Um, but yeah, it, going through that, you know, you get different ideas of the uh, the different tribes, you know, it, what or the different camps. I'm sorry. One thing you have to keep in mind with camps is camps are generally a bad thing because they prioritize something else over the normal um, priorities of the of the tribe and the tribe. Garu Nation yep. in general. So it's basically they they're really they're really obsessed with one particular thing that kind of works as a detriment to other things. And not always like some tribes, the, just with the way that they function and the things that they believe, 
are not uh, are not terribly bad, but others are noticeably and obviously bad uh, as far as uh, that shifting mentality. It definitely adds flavor, though, because um, we'll take a look at these two camps that were presented. Right. So you have the Amazons of Diana who are the Black Furies who are secret order dedicated to protecting women from the worm. And um, they, of course, have their their safe houses and stuff like that. But they are they're hardcore. Uh, they'll yeah. never swear like an oath event. They'll never let anything go like they're they're there to, to be pound town. Uh, they're there to make sure that, you know, movements made people hear it. They, they see it, but it only bolsters their reputation for it. Uh, the other one is the freebooters, which we've heard about in, in um, the Amazon book. And it's pretty cool because yeah. they do what, you know, one aspect of the Black Furies that some don't notice, of course, as he was mentioning, was recovering artifacts because they do procure them. And these freebooters are literally spreading across the world, doing what they need to do to, to recover those stolen treasures and or things that are worth preserving. Um, so in, in regards to those camps, yeah, there there is a certain level of detriment that comes from it because you're, you're dedicating a certain aspect of your tribe above all. But it also adds that particular flavor because let's face it, even when we create any type of character, vampire, or werewolf, there's always one cool thing we liked about the tribe that we chose. Um, and the, what the camp does is just kind of put it underneath a magnifying glass for you to be able to go all out on it. Yeah. And that's, uh, it's, it's cool and fun. I like, I like playing camps from time to time. Uh, definitely. Uh, but I want to shift us on to the Bonars cause we got a lot of tribes to run through and I want to try and pick up the pace a little bit. You mean the beautiful Bonars? I, I, I do mean the beautiful Bonars. Don't look at the picture. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful fur on that, on that Bonar. Uh, it does have a great quote at the beginning of it, which says, uh, "It's a it's a silver lord, or uh, I'm sorry, a silver fang who uh, who points at uh, at one of the bonars and says, and as for you, what we do not eat of our kills, you may eat. To you go the bones and sinew of the prey. Go now, sulk in the bushes, waiting for your lords to finish their meals. It's like a, it pretty much just lays down the the foundation of the bonar um, treatment, you know, from from every point in the future." Obviously, we know what bonars are good at, right? They're experts in survival. Um, you know, they uh, they their hierarchy structure is almost as loose as it gets, and uh, it is. But they do have something interesting with them. Uh, a, a particular right? Did you notice it? I did. That right? You talk about the black ball? Yeah, yeah. What is it? So it's a punishment right, and essentially, what ends up happening is like it doesn't happen often. This is to bonars itself, but when it does happen, it's pretty harsh. What they do is they grab a black ball, a black eight ball. And uh, they tie it around the offender's neck. And for whatever reason, right, they it, it just can't. Number one, it can't get removed. So yep. there, there's no taking it off. But it acts as a homing beacon to vampires. And so <laughs> and the vamp- weird how that works out where this person now just has to continuously run. Obviously, no, one, no one's going to try to associate with them. But um, it's crazy that such a right exists. It's almost <laughs> it's like the right of the running man. Right. You know, yeah, the Arnold Schwarzenegger right? movie. <laughs> <laughs> but the crazy part is, like, we, I also had this conversation with you a little bit earlier. If you could draw all vampires out like this, and this is, of course, just joshing out. If you could draw all vampires out like this, you know how easy it would be for a war? Just like, all right, well, we're going to go to battle. Blackball them. What? Yeah, just put blackball and everyone just have every vampire come out. But obviously, folks, the reason you do that is because uh, werewolves are not vampires. They're not as cunning in certain cases. And uh, to be inside of a city, that's going to that's going to cause some issues. Um, one interesting thing before that as well is that vampires in their rather, I'm sorry, NARS in terms of their structure are so loose that all it takes for you to become a NAR is just declare yourself one yeah. and be obviously poor. It's just turn like you, you don't have to be a Ronin. Like if you wanted to be a Ronin, that's a whole different, you could have been a bone NAR and had a family as well. But that was really cool to find out that all it takes is just for you to denounce, say you're a bone NAR. Um, and Hey, you, you part of the tribe. Yeah. If you get kicked out of your tribe. Uh, just go over to the Bonars. As long as uh, as long as you don't tick them off and get blackballed, then uh, 
you know, live on the street, learn how to learn how to survive and you're you're in. Yep. Um, what about camps? Did you have one particular favorite one out of the ones presented? I um, <laughs> I couldn't believe the deserters. I'll be honest with you. Deserters is, is a favorite. camp that uh, <laughs> these guys could care less about the war against the worm. As a matter of fact, they focus entirely on searching for a place to run away to like a different realm. It's crazy, but it's funny at the same time. It's like, hey, we got to survive above all things. It's like our survival is number one. And like, this is a sinking ship. Time to go ahead and make friends with the mages, the shamans, anyone who could go ahead and uh, give us a place to stay because uh, that house is going to be better than the one we currently in. What this tells you is that the Bonars will survive the apocalypse no matter what. This is true. This is true. You know, and then it takes us into the children of Gaia. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. As we kind of look around and, and try to figure out what's happening here. Uh. Well, the children guy or the children guy, folks. It's uh, it's lamb chops play along in terms of trying to make sure that <laughs> that we take a look at like a, a tribe that is specifically built to say that they will bring peace across. Right, their structure is so loose because they try to spread themselves out amongst every tribe to give that moment of peace. It can't be rage all the time. It's very paradoxical in the fact that you should be raging at the end because the apocalypse is coming through and because you are a, a guy's warrior. How do you bring this? But, and I have to admit, but was that one of the coolest parts about the story is it tells you how you could diffuse such a situation because they mentioned that Gaia had spoken to them and had given them three secrets and had mentioned that there are certain things that do end up happening. One of them being like fear and greed drive people to rule and depravity. And then, you know, in order for you to be able to give, you have to be able to open up and give other people back. And the people that close up, that's also their weakness. Yep. And the second one was that depravity is a powerful weapon that kills empathy. But on the same token, that's also. A weakness of those that have depravity because they're so narrow minded. And so this is what they use as their moving piece to go like, if we could see this, then there's a different way. There is another way. There's a different way to combat it. So in that case, I could see where, you know, after reading this specifically, and had I read this in the core book, I probably would have liked them a lot more or at least understood their position better. Yeah. But fortunately, that's why it's here in the player's handbook is to give you a reason why they are here. Um, are they some of, they're definitely still not my favorite. However, I am more understanding of their position here yeah i mean uh it it does it does enlighten you a lot i got some ideas for uh for children of gaia characters and, and i'll be honest with you i've i've never had been inspired to play uh, a child of gaia until you know like reading through the section i was like wait there is an idea that's kind of molding its way in the bank that just might work but then uh but then it jumped on into the fiana section and uh the fiana section just seemed uh kind of strange to me like uh there wasn't a whole lot of history in this but they did talk about a legend um, that they had uh, back in the day, um, whose uh, name is Fionn Mac um, It's I know I'm butchering that because I'm not Irish, um, but uh, a lot of that uh, they they say that uh, there's there's chances that uh, you know that guy named uh, his, his his people. He's like a he's like a legend back over there, um, and I'm not familiar with the story. Um, but he named himself after the uh, the the Fianna because he was a um, he was a kinfolk of them and, uh, you know, kind of espoused their things. And, and obviously that works back and forth. They're very proud of of what that guy's, uh, you know, accomplished of. And they and they love to tell their stories and they love to get drunk. So they love to get drunk and tell his story. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, we, we know about Fianna's right. They're the they're the Galliards, Galliards um, always will be. And uh, generally a good time had by all. Is there anything you noticed in here that that stuck out to you? Yeah. So speaking about that is one of the things that we it's not so much that we take for granted as much as it is like there's always that stereotype of the Galliard's Galliard and, of course, drinking, fighting, brawling, etc. 
But there's also a dark history that's also there because it's also a cautionary tale, like too much of something causes an excess. And in that particular case, we take a look at a camp, which if I uh, like the eerie fundamentalist, which pretty much are like, hey, they're they're terrorists that believe that Ireland should be ruled uh, like underneath the Imperium again, like uh, the uh, Pergium. Uh, humans dominated by the Iron Fist and populations kept them to strictest control. Yeah. And they are ruthless, cruel, and even much more so than the Red Talons. However, it is not to take away from the fact that it also does reflect an aspect of the Fianna, right? It's not all fun and games. It's not all smiles. It's these are warrior people. People. Uh, these are folks that at one point did participate in it. And because of it, you know, they do have a history and a legacy to live up to. And for them, um, this is how they espouse it. So once again, you know, these camps are, are extremes to certain things. And th- I could see this being a very good antagonist camp uh, for a lot of folks, especially those that are trying to figure out like, well, you know, it's all fun and games until it's not. Right. right. So I could see where this particular camp also ends up being probably one of my better antagonists if I were to ever run a, uh, a game with a with a minute. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting to see that. And they both they have a camp for like each side of the uh, of the uh, the conflict between them and, and uh, you know, like Great Britain and, and different stuff like that that kind of rolls through there and, and other stories. But uh, what I've been what I've been kind of jonesing for is getting to the Geta Fenris, obviously. Yep. Take it, sir. So, get a Fenris. Um, it goes through their history at uh, and saying uh, so much as they were created as uh, as Gaia's perfect killing machine. Um, of course, they came from Scandinavia, right? And uh, and grew to love the people of Scandinavia for their you know uh, their aggressive and uh, and 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 strong personalities and uh, and and warlike natures. Obviously, it's hand in glove when you get the get a Fenris and the and the, the, the Norse uh, of old together. So the, uh, the, the primary belief is that battle's a glorious honor, and to die in battle assures you a place in Valhalla. Now, that, that we all know, but also gives insight as to why the Get are always so willing to stand against so insurmountable and odd, or, or odds in general, and uh, you know, be able to, to, to take the fight to them with all their might. It's because it's been predetermined. This is the best thing for them. Um, they'll defend Gaia and destroy the worm at any cost, right? Any cost, including traveling across the ocean to another land, to another tribe's protectorate, and taking their cairn away because they're not doing a good enough job. Uh, obviously, we know about that, the, the stories of the Pure Lands, um, in which uh, you know, they came over and they saw the Croton you know, had been lost to the, the Eater of Souls, and then you know, everyone else was kind of fumbling, mumbling around, and, and the Get, being as strong-headed as they are, said, well, if you're not doing a good job protecting it, we will. And and obviously, uh, you know, that's 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 history. It, it's brought up in, in several of the books we've been through so far, including Vancouver and uh, in different areas like that, where the the strong, brash nature of the get, you know, you know, puts them into position to want to be the primary defenders of everything. But they do go through a bunch of uh, camps in here. I mean, a bunch of camps in here. What do you uh, what, what stuck out to you? Uh, probably the Valkyrie of Freya. Uh, they they stood out the most, if only because yeah. this is probably one of the ones where it, it's easy to point the rivalry between the Get versus the Black Fury, but it's also to point out the fact that Get are all about strength, up to and including their own. So in this case, it's primarily made up of female Get who meet up in secret, but when they do, they're they're trying to put their own you know their own force out there. And if strength is the only thing that's going to be respected, then by golly, they're going to go ahead and make it happen by showing up and doing certain things. Yes, you know uh, one of the yes. things that they mention has been made more than once ever asking the aid of Black Furies or simply defecting from the Get of Flanders, uh to the Black Furies. But that's also because they're standing up for something. Doesn't mean your camp has to be successful, not necessarily. But at the same token, it's one of those things where 
you know, it's easy to take a look at someone, uh, rather a tribe like the Get, where for all its might, might sometimes doesn't make all the right. And in certain cases where you start seeing where you could play the pathos of like, sometimes you might not be able to make it. Uh, sometimes even as we spoke about in the first book, and we're talking about like rites of passages, sometimes you just don't make it out either. Yep. So what happens? Um, and, and, you know, as much as we speak about it, I'm sure when we get to the other tribes, such as like Shadow Lords and such, we'll see like harrowing tales from them as well. So this was actually interesting for me to read here. Uh, we can't go through this without talking about the Swords of Heimdall, um, mm-hmm. unfortunately. And, and we, we know what they are. The, the Swords of Heimdall are the, um, the get supremacists, I guess is the best way of putting it. Um, they believe that the only way to worm corruption is by mingling the blood. So obviously pure blood. Uh, this goes through all of your skinhead um, nonsense like that. It tells you flat out in, in this camp chapter that this is not recommended for player characters. Um, it, it just isn't. It, it requires uh, a maturity to it that uh, that hopefully uh, anyone who does play it brings to it uh, because, you know, you're, you are playing a, a person who's who's woefully wrong. And as it says, very, very close to the worm, if not over the line, uh, depending on on, on where you go with that. And, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, eh, just keep that in mind. I, I don't know. Another th- I could add to that, though, because there's another thing to layer onto it as well, is at least bringing it here once again, much like the uh, fun- the fundamentalist is they exist for purposes of giving you the stark contrast in terms of where the center line is. Once again, might Rick's right uh, versus those that are struggling moving forward, such as the Valkyrie, Afreya versus the Swords of Heimdall, which are obviously the ones you don't want to mess with. We, as we see in later editions, and especially through time, uh, this camp becomes smaller, and there's only so much that could be done because when you're fighting odds at all, and even other guard would start, start taking a look at you and going like, "This ain't right." That's just something to to put out there, folks. Yeah. But uh, it's at least good to have it there as a barometer of like where not to go. Um, and if you do happen to encounter them, then you know exactly where to focus your rage upon. <laughs> but that walks us into uh, into the glass walkers, right? So. The- Glass we know the history walkers. of glasswalkers. They they integrated into human society early on, and uh, what what they what they had in here that that blew my mind is that they worked directly with crime lords and mafiosos, right? And uh, essentially um, working as uh, as like enforcers for uh, for mafia families, which blew my mind apart. I I don't recall seeing that anywhere to date. Nope, that was the first one there because it'll it'll start off small, right? It hits you with the whammy because in the beginning it's telling you how they start integrating <laughs> into, like they start recognizing that the weavers' tools are all part of the plan. How they start yeah. moving through and and it, it all makes sense. And then when they start getting to the earliest glimmers of the Maltese crime lords, they they swore apparently sacred oaths with each other, I guess, just to integrate themselves and create that power base. Which I guess at one point or another may or may not make sense, but this is where you start getting your mafioso glasswalkers. This is like your beginning of it, and it shows up. And um, what they did and the reason why they keep the mafia around is because apparently the mafia helps maintain the veil. So for every crazy thing that Garu is going to do, that glass walker, there's going to be a legitimate, quote unquote, and or like brutal thing that the mafia might do just to send a message out to someone. So (laughs) I thought that was pretty crazy. It also talks about their relationship with vampires, um, how they both know that they have the same battleground and those are the same living space. They try to keep truces with each other. Uh, but it's unfortunate because one way or another, one side or the other is just going to make the truce fall apart. Um, and so any type of, you know, clandestine thing they have is is exactly that. It's clandestine and frail. And so don't rely upon it too much. So don't think that they're buddy buddies, to say the least. All right. Um, we have to speed round through the rest of these. So it's going to be exciting. Um, Red Talons. Luckily, this kind of just leaves us to it. Um, 
in, in here, they pretty much just say, if you want to learn more about Red Talons, read Ways of the Wolf. Uh, it mentions it like two or three times. Uh, we've been through that, so we kind of get an understanding of, uh, of a lot of how the, uh, the organizational structure and things like that with, uh, with Red Talons works. Um, but uh, yeah, they, uh, they have basically uh, two camps, you know, those that, that think that humans are worth keeping around and those who thinks we should have kept eating them. And for everything else, apparently there's Way of the Wolf. So right. if you want to read it, there's point to another book um shadow lords are the uh uh theirs goes into legendary uh and talks about how they're they're the uh children of of grandfather thunder and gaia like those two had a baby it got it got real and then out came the shadow lords and they rallied and beat the worm back and then somehow the worm has come back through through different times um these guys obviously are uh, are ruthless dictators you know the the leadership methods of the uh, of the Shadow Lords is well known. <laughs> it is like it definitely is, and uh, because of the fact that they are of two gods, then it just cemented their legitimacy in their eyes, and that's the reason. If anything at all, one of the coolest things to talk about is the camps. Uh, definitely the mask that even it mentions the Geta Fenris Shudder when the mask are around, and these guys are no jokes because they'll scarify themselves, and fear ends up becoming the way through. And because they're so dedicated to their task in terms of being able to execute that fear, if you have the the bullies even having to worry about these folks that just tells you um how cool these particular shadow lords may or may not be yeah so there's some that's there's a- some cool stuff in here they have like their own inquisitors um that just go around hunt anyone who breaks a litany it's uh it's interesting stuff and uh you can get a lot of really interesting role play out of shadow lords and i don't think they've gotten a lot of a lot of cool yet god knows they do in the future and they desperately need it but early on here um shadow lords are just set back as the uh as as the beaten older brother uh mm-hmm. it goes on to silent striders um you know talks about how they're uh they kind of had their war was set and then got booted out into into everywhere in the world and now they just kind of wander around do their own thing um what it did talk about was how they used to guide humans from death to the underworld which i thought was super interesting um it is it wasn't uh wasn't anything that i'd uh that i'd read before um but we get cool stuff in here right and so traveler camps, profit camps, wanderer camps, you know, so on and so forth. And then we have the obvious, you know, the eaters of the dead camp. And we already talked about their right. The camp isn't much different than just people who perform that right. Um, so, but uh, brains be yummy. I mean, it's 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 kind of crazy in its own right, though. And I, I so want to use that for something. But we go into the silver fangs. Obviously, the silver fangs, they think they're the greatest thing there ever was. And they've got the breeding to prove it. Um, they think. uh that they have divine right, right? So they, the idea is that all the tribes used to be part of one tribe before they split back in the day. The Silver Fangs say, well, we're the purest representation of that one tribe. Everyone else is just kind of people who sprung off from us. Uh, you know, and of course they would say that, but obviously it, it talks about how their breeding stock has dwindled. They've gone to inbreeding and now they've got weakness and madness. Um, only one camp though. And that's a it's a renewal camp, which wishes to, uh, you know, take people from outside their traditional bloodlines and kind of mix in that uh, that less pure blood to, you know, like re-strengthen the uh, the blood and, and kind of kick off the uh, the problems that they've been having. Obviously not mm-hmm. a popular mentality. Definitely not. And then we get to our stargazers, which it's exactly as you think it is regarding how they view everything. This is like the most eastern of the tribe, so to speak. Um, the biggest things here to take away from it is, you know, where they had journeyed, where they're going forward. Um, a lot of the astrology, Kalindo in and of itself, um, how it starts to affect them. 
Um, but even more so are pretty much like the camps, right? Uh, one of the one is pretty much like the the Kletal Puk, uh, the camp consisting of those who believe that the prime mission of any Garo seeking truth is to follow the original path of the Starkler hero, who was Kletal, which imparted wisdoms and words to his student, yep. but it had been corrupted over the years. And that one's pretty cool uh, because it definitely puts you in a sense of like, well, th- I get to be Kane from Kung Fu and just wander <laughs> down the path. Uh, of it and uh th- every tribe of course has its own way of kind of looking at things but for such a solitary tribe even probably more so in some cases than the silent striders in terms of how they approach things um you get to see how that works they had the ouroborans which in my mind is like that next level guru thinking right so these guys um what they want to do is they want to they want to take all the different fractions of the worm and they want to bring them back together into the one worm and that hopefully that will will stop the madness of the worm and then bring balance back to Gaia. So essentially, by healing the worm, you'll heal the triad. And uh, and that's uh, I can only imagine how that goes at like a conclave or a conclation. Um, that's uh, that's got to be <laughs> the most interesting thing to just watch everyone go. What is he saying? Uh, Why would he even? Yeah. Well, welcome to being a stargazer when you look inward. I know, right? Nick, tell us about the Utena. Yep, uh, Utena. So eldest of the three brothers, um, they uh, they're interesting in the fact that they uh, that they they seek knowledge of the worm um, that. Well, I guess maybe understanding is the best way to put it. Um, and it, it all comes from, you know, being snuck up on by the eater of souls. You know, they lost uh, they lost a crow and tribe to it and they don't want to do it again. Uh, so they uh, they also are the ones that uh, that do the bane tending, which is brought up in here. Obviously, a close kept secret where they whisper into to these powerful uber banes and keep them, you know, like tucked away and, uh, and sleeping so they don't wake up and, you know, we lose another tribe. And they're doing this so that eventually they'll have the resources to fight it. They're just trying to buy time. If only they can find out more, then they'll be ready. And that's funny you should mention that because it is like one of the camps are the bane tenders, right? To keep these folks nice and sleepy. Uh, before waking them up but then you take a look at the opposite which is the skywalkers which are pretty much folks that are going to to look for allies doff in yeah. the deep rumble that they go trying to find something else to bring back that might be better than a bane or stronger than a bane to combat the worm yep um so they you know this this tribe is not for lack of expending the the amount of resources necessary to come back stronger because they got as nick mentioned snuck up on the first time they ain't about to let it happen again so if they can't find it from within they'll find it from without Tell me about the Wendigo. The Wendigo are the last pure ones. They are the last ones. And the one thing that we didn't mention about the Utena is like they know enough to have bred into different types of societies in the pursuit of having, you know, looking for the the answers. Whereas the Wendigos are the ones who look inward, you know, the last among the, the native tribes. Uh, whereas the Utena had the south, the, the Wendigo um, had natives that were able to, to breed from the north. Um, and sad is their tale because it is that they still live with the regret of not having done what their older brother had done at that moment in time. And so they fight. Their resentment towards the get is heavy, if only because the get, well, you know, one of the things that they do mention is get don't respect anyone, but those are strength. And they respect the Crowden for dying in battle. Yes. And uh, the get looked down upon the other two tribes that way. And Wendigo was like, I ain't having that. Nope. <laughs> De- definitely not having that. There's a difference between that. There's a lot of tradition that's steeped in it. There's a reason why they survive. There's a reason why they even have Wendigo as their. Uh, totem there um you know which brings us over to our camps nick you have a, a camp in general that you found interesting on your end i um i played a ghost dancer uh, it was a nutena ghost ghost dancer but I, I do enjoy the uh the the ghost dancers um because of their uh 
their 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 obsession with uh with trying to figure out a way to to bring the Crowton back. Obviously, the Crowton's like my favorite Pure Lands tribe, but you know you almost never get to play them unless you're playing some historical game. The other one is definitely the Warpath camp, which is probably it, it's so large at this point you'd almost think it doesn't need to be a camp uh, to begin with. But it's like the de facto camp that most people would probably take a look at, which is drive the European you know worm bringers back. Uh, they brought them over, get rid of them. We don't need you on our lands as it right. is. And it's not just against other Garu as much as it is other humans as well. Um, their rage is such that, you know, it's very few the amount of um, tribes that they do associate with. You tend to obviously the Red Pan, the Black Furies for what it is that they stand for. Um, but they have a chip on their shoulder and they have a reason to, you know, they're they're fighting back because they know what it's like and they just want to regain a, a certain sense of honor, honor uh, and glory to their name. It's it's the Wendigo we all know and love, I guess, is, a, mm-hmm. is the way of, of, of kind of looking at that. Obviously, they take it to a further extreme than the rest of the tribes or the rest of the tribe. Um, but yeah, I I dig I dig the Wendigo um, because they have that internal strength. They're almost the uh, the the you know, the purer reflection of the, of the get in that essence. Um, but obviously mm-hmm. they're you know, not as stubborn and mule headed as the, uh, as the get, which is hard to say, um, because I mean, they still get stubborn and mule headed, <laughs> but bringing us into the next section, it starts talking about the sept, which I got super excited about, uh, because it's so hard to find, uh, good information on even the, the moot procedures that they talk through here. Um, and it's kind of the uh, the big opening section of this is it talks about, uh, you know, the, the different phases of your moots, your opening howl, you know, where, uh, you know, the master of the howl does his thing. And then the, the fool will question everything that happens and everyone's supposed to shout him down, you know, as this, uh, this interesting way of reaffirming the uh, the rites and traditions, the uh, inner sky uh, where they, they devote uh, honoring the totem of the uh, of the of the sept and the, and the different yeah, totems of the tribes and things like that. The call of the wild comes out, you know, and, and calls the uh, the spirits in, and they do rites to to reaffirm those connections and and draw those spiritual ties back together. And it talks. We'll we'll talk later on about uh, about why those ties are important in the totem section because they're super important. Um, the cracking the bone, the cracking of the bone, right? Yep, this the is cracking of the this bone. is what everybody remembers. It, is pretty much what everyone anticipates happens when you get together, which is grievances must be aired. And much like that one day in Peru where everyone just gets to slap the shit out of each other before they go back to being normal. <laughs> this is exactly it. Um, this is where deaths are settled. This is where challenges have to be made. Uh, they're presented. Um, so this is where you actually see that happening. They actually do talk about different types of challenges later in the book, which we'll get to. Um, then we move over to stories and songs, which is exactly what you think it is. Yep. This is the time to be the galliard. This is where your dance offs happen. Um, this is where you're able to go ahead and rely on other members of the pack with their special abilities to help assist you with your story and where you get that, that sick renown from, from cool stories. So yep. if your galliard has been sleeping during the, the game so far, this is the point where everyone's relying on them cash in those awesome storytelling capabilities to get a little bit get of pocket renown. change. Yep. Yep. It's followed then by the revel. And the cool part about the revel is pretty much they work themselves up into a frenzy. So you got to imagine this every time you hold a moot at one point during this moot, you better hope you're not an enemy around the area because that's when they let loose. When uh, <laughs> they wait till everyone's frenzied enough and they're like, you ready, bro? No, you're bra, I'm ready, bra, 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 bra. And then off they go. Oh, yeah. They're, they're waiting till everyone's like juiced up and frothing at the mouth. And then they just run yeah. out and just uh, like scatter around, kick over dumpsters. <laughs> Anything that they, they can do to, to kind of let off that steam. The most important part is that the people who are participating in this, this is where they give that gnosis back to the Cairn to juice the Cairn back up. 
Most people forget mm-hmm. about that. Cairns need upkeep. Totems need upkeep. These are relationships, and you have to continually keep them up. But uh, you know, that's not the only thing that happens in uh, in a set. There's also uh, litany law, right? They'll uh, they'll have trials and uh, and deliver punishments. Now, most of the time, there's no need for that, right? Like uh, the most uh, disagreements that happen between Guru are settled with like a uh, you know like simple challenges and things like that. The only time it ever gets to a trial is when there's some grievous stuff that's happened when you have broken. A, uh, a when you violate the litany, that's when you stay in trial, or when uh, when enough people um, are are convinced that you've uh, you know broken the litany, and then they they go through different punishments, you know, like shaming and shunning and death and casting out. They some of these go so far as to uh, to not just kill you, but to banish your spirit from the the presence of Gaia forevermore. So even when you're rebirthed, you're rebirthed as a as a part of the worm. And Gaia just doesn't want you. They'd rather have you as an enemy than a friend. It is worth noting that these are escalating situations for the most part. So, like, most of the time, a good shaming should be more than enough to set you straight. Yep. Um, and considering that, like, the way that it's performed and the the, um, the effect that it has on you as a Garu, uh, most people come correct after that. But it only goes to show that as it starts escalating to the point of either shunning or death um, and or being cast out, like, you, you habitual at this point, uh, you know, and then. Moving on from that, though, it does bring us to a cool portion, which is like the silver pack. And what is a silver pack? They're like the Power Rangers of like the the coolest of the cool Garu um, who are defending that particular set. Uh, They have different types of duties. It has to you go through a specific set of trials. But the main thing is you're there to met out justice on behalf of the set. Uh, You're there to go ahead and defend it. Um, When you go fight the worm, you blessed because you have Phoenix looking over you, which is really cool. Um, in addition, it only in addition happens. to your normal pack totem, that's that's the really cool part, right? Uh, Phoenix yep. Phoenix stacks on top, so uh, you know when you're when you're chosen a Phoenix, it's uh, it's wicked awesome benefits. It is, and and you know one of the things to bring up to it though is like why Phoenix would even choose you. So to start, you do have to go through a couple of tests. You do have to test your glory, your honor, and your wisdom. And while you might be able to succeed in what you think is the right manner. Remember that Phoenix is watching and as are your elders, and they'll be searching to see whether or not you're wanting in one way, shape or another. And whereas you thought you might succeed, uh, you'll be put aside if they figure that there's a better candidate in there. So you might have been pure breed Arun bashing things left and right, but then comes along the Metis who just did it in a better fashion. And specifically how the set, you know, was set rather is taking a look for um, this type of um, guardianship to happen and he'll succeed and, and the other ones are out. And once that mm-hmm. happens, Phoenix will choose you or he'll banish you. And it's a it's a heavy price to pay because fire does burn. And the Phoenix rejects you, then, you know, you take a certain amount of aggravated damage. You left with a mark for a while just to remember you you weren't worthy enough yet, at least this time. Um, however, for the others, they're surrounded by a nimbus of uh, glowing blue fire. They get the mark. They get Phoenix's uh, mark and chosen for it. They get to, you know, the benefits that come from it. You get to speak to other Garu because you're hot shit now. You also get to fight the worm and it's harder to defeat you if only because you were chosen by Phoenix. You were you passed the test test to be able to do all this stuff. Uh, I thought this entire section was great. The idea of the silver pack, the the mission of the silver pack, like this is all great stuff. Um, it even talks about the great bestowment of honor that comes from being chosen. You know, each each member of the uh, of the silver pack, there is at least five, which is a pinnacle of each auspice. Right? There can be more, but one person is going to be the pinnacle of that auspice. Um, and uh, you know, kind of the rest of the rest of the people are there just tagging along. As uh, as good enough, but not the greatest. And so there, I mean, there's that. But uh, it does talk in here about kind of how uh, how hierarchies are chosen in inside a sept, 
And obviously, if you're going to go up a rank, you got to you got to challenge somebody. Um, and so it's it's important that that you kind of look at different aspects of how how challenges work through here. Obviously, people of higher rank, they have more say. That's just the the natural way of it, because, um, you know, Guru are, are hierarchical that way. Um, but uh, when it comes to different challenges, like if you have a disagreement with somebody, um, it could be simple things like a face down, just a staring contest. Right. Whoever looks away first, they, uh, you know, they lose or you can get imaginative. And with that comes game craft. Right. You'd be like physical, mental or social uh, challenges um, between any two contestants. And uh, and this is where you really rely on the creativity of your players and your ST to kind of craft up these game crafts. It could be anything from like, a, you know, who can walk the farthest on their hands to, you know, who can recite the litany uh, more closely than than the other like these different challenges where, um, you know, as it's as is needed for any given situation, you know, an obvious dometer can be determined. The other part about this is the first time that I've seen in the book where it starts to incorporate or suggest live action ways to kind yes. of resolve situations. Yes, right. So like your stare down, your stare down could literally be like stare at another person and just make sure they're not the ones to blink or stare away first. Um, up to and including one of the things I mentioned about the stare down is like, especially if it's something that has to deal with bonars, they'll be heckling you in the background, trying to take your attention away so that you don't look at them. You could only yep. imagine the like the straight out vitreous shit coming out of people's mouths just to make you turn around going like you said what about my mom game over yeah right yep or uh, they also mention as well this also happens for game craft it's not for everyone though because of course you know uh comfort levels as well as the ability to see what well, someone might just blink a lot and it's not going to work out for them so they do give you mechanical rules and the reason i also mention that is because we get to the last challenge that is kind of mentioned which is the duel um which is the most serious type of challenge as was mentioned before yeah and they straight out tell you this uh this totally does not lend itself to live action usually you end up uh, making roles for this one but um those are the challenges that are presented as they are presented you know which also come into like formal challenges and when those kind of arise there um you pretty much bring it up um once again those challenges that we had offered you before in most cases though they usually end up either becoming a duel or game craft in terms of how they are yep. uh, presented themselves uh, but it's a good time to go ahead and earn some rank off of that because that is when you start pumping up so to speak. Yeah, and that's where you can uh you can gain and lose renown uh based on uh who you challenge and how you do uh different stuff like that. Uh formal challenges are are when it gets serious, right? It's more than just uh, you know, two people boasting about what they're capable of doing, you know, as uh, as they're in the middle of doing something and then like making a, a challenge out of who can drink the most water or whatever it is. When it gets to a formal challenge, it's in front of everybody and it's for keeps. It's it's for something important. What do you think of the pictograms in here? I thought they were I thought they were cool. The pictograms were cool in the sense of how they came to be, which essentially is like you have to be for the most part they're done in Krenos form. Some of them they mentioned that could be done in the Hisbo form, but it's a good way of being able to solidify an identity for yourself. Um, it's not only the tribes, and the funny part about that is is like you see the pictograms and you're like, okay, well pictograms. Let me go ahead and take a look, and you flip the page over, and that's when you start seeing the tribe pictograms, right? Yeah. Not only the tribe ones, but you start taking a look at what Luna's looks like. Um, the auspices, your breeds, your symbols, your fetish glyphs. And as you start watching them, you start seeing how they're incorporated in every other werewolf book. But they're not only just for purposes of, you know, visual aesthetics. They they serve a purpose in game as well. And this is how you kind of leave your your markings on grounds left and right. Oh, man, I I, I agree. So jumping in with uh, with Cairns, uh, it, it talks about kind of how Cairns were created. 
you know, when the weaver separated the the spiritual and the physical world, it wasn't able to get all the areas. There's still areas where like the wild was strong. And uh, in those areas, the, the gauntlet was, was super thin and, you know, had, uh, you know, a bit of a power to them. And that's where the, it's those spots where these these cairns are created. So uh, generally when when opening a, a cairn for the first time, establishing that cairn, you need to uh, you need to get a whole bunch of people there because of the massive amount of, of gnosis required. And because uh, you're, you're drawing a spirit to it. Right. And you're negotiating with that spirit to uh to kind of offer it to to open up that cairn and uh, and once once that happens then uh you know obviously you draw in you know other worm creatures as well which kind of catch your attention you got to have people that to fend that off but also you know the the massive offering that happens there but uh it goes into different types of cairns there's some interesting stuff in here um if you haven't seen it uh worth taking a look at <clears throat> but uh i i've seen some of these in the in the past, and, and we'll probably go into super high detail um, when we get to Cairn Spices of Power over the different types of, of Cairns and, and how they're used. It tells you great locations for them, which is worth taking a look at 100%. Uh, it even goes into worm Cairns, right? So like Cairns of angst, lust, um, organism, and toxin. It, it's something that I, I hadn't really looked at before. And obviously, uh, that's uh, that's all interesting stuff. And I hope we see more of this in the Book of the Worm. Which is uh, which is coming up shortly. They also mentioned that it's very very volatile because it's not like these cairns, especially the worm cairns, are are made to last. Um, anyone trying to bring it up, it's just going to probably implode on itself, and it's very short lived. It's it's like the Kurgan says, you know, better burn out than fade <laughs> away. And so for them, uh, this is one of the things that kind of does show up. And and, and it's not also to say that Garu can't attempt to to build upon a worm cairn, but it tells you specifically why you'd probably want to take a look at cleansing it first because it's a different energy altogether. Um, yeah. One of the things, as, as you know, Nick was mentioning here, the same also does apply in terms of like what type, like a lust cairn, organism, or a toxin cairn. You could also look at it from the regular perspective of a cairn. Every cairn has to be chosen with purpose behind it. Every spirit that you call in is a purpose behind it. It's not just willy nilly created it outside of obviously you know certain locations in the world where it's just easy to know that it's drawing that much power. But because of the amount of dedication it does take, you could see where that happens. And for worm cairns. Um, why it works out so easily is because it is so volatile, like a Chernobyl sorts, you know, any yeah. place of atrocity and or like dumpster fire that might be happening. Uh, but then it also goes into our totems. Um, and one thing that it does mention about those totems is as you do call that spirit, um, you know, it, that spirit does assist everyone who's part of that sept. But what the cool part about it, though, is like if your pack was already following that particular totem, it's just an additional bonus. Like the chances of you uh, getting a position of power for that cairn alone or staying within that sept as well is more to your benefit because you are already following that particular way. So, you know, whereas another pack might get the benefit of two uh, particular totems, your benefit for always having followed and stayed true ride or die to this particular totem are they they know what you've been able to do for them. They'll let you go ahead and take those positions of power because they could trust what you do. So I thought that was really cool, too. Yeah. And it goes over like the the different types of areas inside the uh, inside the cairns and positions within the cairn. Um, stuff that we've seen before, you know, masters of the right, masters of the challenge, so on and so forth. Uh, it goes into them in detail. Uh, we don't have time to cover them, so take a look at it when you get a chance. But uh, it takes us right into uh, into chapter five, which is the Umbra. Here, right at the beginning, we have a beautiful long list of of fetishes. If you get a chance, take a look at them. There's cool stuff in here, you know, like ATM cards that you can always withdraw from, or like vampire tongues that heal egg and. One thing I saw, you saw that, right? Yeah, I was about to say that one caught my eye. The tongue of the leech. 
you have a dried preserved tongue of a vampire that could be used to heal ag. That's uh, a <laughs> hey, come here. First of all, we <laughs> know that uh, we know that when a vampire licks a wound, it closes. <laughs> Jesus. All right. All right. We're going down that route. Uh, I will say one of the ones that caught my eye was uh, the coin of wealth. I thought that one was really cool. The coin of wealth. Yeah. Really? So essentially you have you have a, I thought the coin of wealth was pretty cool, especially how they described it. So very, very short. The the coin, if you have it, once it's imbued, you pretty much just grab it, rub it, kiss it, do whatever you got to, and it'll bring you prosperity. It doesn't necessarily mean it's gonna give you cash, but what it does mean is that at an opportune moment, it's gonna help you out. And the um one that I thought was really cool that they use as an example is like you get arrested, you wait, you have your coin on you because they didn't take it off of you, you do your magical juju on it. Hey, Rodriguez, you're out. What? Yeah, someone called in, paid bail. Little did they know it was a spirit who managed to also create the funds necessary for you to get out. So that was that was clever how that worked out. Yeah, I don't know. I thought that was cute. It, it, it's interesting, you know. Obviously, it says uh, you know it warns the storyteller about abuse, um, mm. which of course, if you had a magic coin of more coin, yeah, people would abuse it. <laughs> the uh, the thing in here that really caught my attention is when it jumps over into fetish drums and it talks about the daruma, which are uh, it's like as old. Um, uh, the Tibetan monks, the uh, it, they take the top of two skulls and they stick them together. You know how they have like the one guy who just kind of sits there and like knocks on the on the wood bowl and it, and it makes that that loud uh, clack noise. It, they do the same thing with this uh, with and it summons the spirits of the dead uh, to come and talk with you, which to me is just weird and interesting. All part of one, but that is really cool because it gives you the breadth of being able to see uh, just how far your imagination can go. And of course, folks remember, like, even though these are printed and quote unquote uh, canonical, what it does do is it should inspire you to be able to create your own, right? Uh, up until this moment when we didn't read it, and like I said, even for us storytellers, even for us taking a look at it, just being impressed by these particular types of fetishes only starts getting your imagination going, like, you know what? I could probably craft something like that yeah. uh, rather than having to follow what's currently in the book. Uh- in here, obviously, it gives you it gives you talons and stuff like that. It does talk about herb magic, though, uh, which is interesting for for people that uh, are familiar with herbs and, and herbal remedies and stuff like that. It gives you the basic power of what can happen when you awaken something. When you use the rite of awakening and awaken the spirit inside of something, the additional benefits you get out of it. Um, you know, some things have like the power to help you resist toxins or or to heal and stuff like that. Super cool stuff. Take a look at it when you get a chance. But it does go mm-hmm. into our spirits, um, which is kind of the the bulk of the section that I, I like to think. Um, obviously, it breaks down things we've seen before. The triad, worm weaver, wild. These are cosmic forces, the, the highest of the highest. But it talks about Celestines. Um, this is where you get Gaia, Luna, and Helios, right? These are, these are greater Celestines. Um, but lesser Celestines are the things you're more familiar with. These are like traditional gods. Um, so like the Aesir of, uh, of Norse mythology, the Olympians, angels and saints, things like that. Those are all lesser Celestines, but not to be outdone. The triadic worm, the uh, defiler worm, the eater of souls, beast of war. Those are also lesser Celestines. So um, it gives you an idea of when we talked about uh, under a blood red moon and it said that the spirit of Jupiter was uh, was uh, in that building. It, it Tell, mm-hmm. This this tells you the power level of it. It's uh it's as powerful as the eater's souls. Well, you know, obviously, uh, we'll get into more details about that. But as it said so far in the book, it equated the level of these beings as this. Um, so and keep in mind that folks, as as we're talking through some of this stuff, we're we're saying this 
as it's put here at this time. You know, obviously, mm-hmm. as things change, they change, and we'll go over them as they change. So it talks about totems here and the, how the Guru and the totems are synergistic, right? The Guru get power from their totems, and the totems get access to Gaia, and they get strength in return, right? So they gain strength from their representations on Gaia. So like rat is stronger when the rat population on Gaia is higher. It just makes sense, right? If there's a big massacre of, uh, of rats for whatever reason, then obviously like the, the power of rat uh, diminishes, which is why you see a lot of bands. Don't mess with raccoons. Don't mess with squirrels. Don't mess with rats. You know, like things like that, because obviously you're lessening the power of your totem when you do that. Um, it also talks about how totems don't like to bind with individuals because they don't get as much uh, as much benefit out of that. You know, when they when they lend their strength to an individual as to when they lend their strength to a pack. Yep. And that just makes sense. Um, one of the things to also pay attention to is this is uh, you have to imagine that for people reading this for the first time from second ed or as you start walking to second ed, this is a bevy of totems. For us, we're kind of a little dead into it, if only because we've seen, you know, if you pick up W20, you're going to have a, a straight amount of like the sheer amount of totems that presented. Yep. So there's nothing new that's going to be found here from your perspective. Um, but taking a look at it from the perspective of, you know, what was presented in your core book to now, this is an impressive amount uh, and creative amount of totems that are, are brought up to point And here. better understanding you know? of them, too. Yep, that is true. That is true. Because it also does bring up afterwards, not only totems, but what are your gaplings and jagglings? You know, what what. What did the incarnas use them for? How does it end up working out in your favor? How do you commune with them, if at all? Um, it gives you an idea as well of stats that might be incorporated with them, not only them, but like elementals. Um, it gives you a couple of um, things there for you to be able to take a look at, along with what charms they might be able to present. How do they interact in your story? Maybe even if you did take that spirit familiar as a background, how you could start shaping them into something like this. Yes. Um, and give them a little yes. bit more flavor. Yes. Right. So that is that is uh that is definitely worth talking about there but we we lead us of course to your discretion and your imagination to um to take a look at it if anything at all uh, that one section alone is perhaps one of the other bigger draws to this book you know yeah um and that'll lead us into our next section in which we get to the others and we talk about the war of rage nick would you like to cover that yeah uh the war of rage is it is super important because the war of rage is uh is when the guru challenged leadership over all the other changing breeds Right. They 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 felt it was their right bestowed upon them by Gaia to be the people who who led everybody, um, including the the wear sharks and the wear tigers and the wear the wear everything. Right. That's what we mean by the changing breeds. So uh, they uh, obviously they all disagreed, citing their own myths and legends in in you know opposition to to the guru myths and legends, which, of course, you would do. But this uh, this conflict came to the point where it started coming to blows. And then when it came to blows, it, it went way worse. Now, obviously, this all started out, a lot of it had to do with a resentment that was, that was built in. The Garal, or werebears, have the ability to revive their own from the dead. And, uh, and, and the Guru really wanted this, right? Because obviously, what's going to help them better with their war against Gaia, or their war against the worm, than when all their great heroes are no longer permanently dead, they can just bring them back. And uh, and the Garal thought about it for a while, and they said, "No, nah, we uh, we actually we we don't want to share that with you." And that was, as you would say, the beginning of the end, because it was only a tipping point that was required before the Garal were hunted, and uh, and it was this uh, this inability for them to to listen to the leadership of the Silverfangs. And as that kind of tipped over, then the rest of them kind of started lining up behind the Garal, saying, "Hey, well." 
if, if you're going to do that, then, you know, obviously we're next. We'll, we'll just all band together to kind of hold you back. But the grew were fearsome and, and they won and they started, you know, wholesale slaughtering these different changing breeds and scattering them throughout the world. And, uh, and it kind of leads us to where we are in the modern day. They're not all gone, but they are all uncommon, rare and hidden and resentful. Can't forget resentful. resentful. <laughs> um, what uh, what different types of uh, of uh, of where creatures does they have in here for us? They have the uh, Nuisha outside of the Gural, which are your werebears. They have your Nuisha, which are the were coyotes. Um, the biggest thing about them is that they are there to teach lessons through humor, uh, whereas the werebears are there to go ahead and heal the world. These are meant to to try to heal the world through humor itself, or at least heal others. Um, it speaks about as well um, the Korax, which are there to watch. Um, to be out and be the eyes of, of Gaia, there are your, um, if I'm not mistaken, your uh, your Bastet, you know, in terms of being yep. able to walk around. There's many of them. Some sections got more love than others, folks, and I'll tell yeah. you why, because it's like you take a look at the Nuisha. All right, you got that. You got your Werebears. You got your Quarax, and you take a look at your Bastet. And they mention, of course, that funnily enough, because they're curious, they got to see everything, but they just can't cross sideways uh, outside of just <laughs> creating their own pocket den yeah, realms. Yeah. But then they have a breed of them. You want a panther, a jaguar, a cougar, a tiger, nine tribes, a cheetah. You Eight want it, playable. they got it. Yeah, whoever wrote this book was very fun to cats, and uh, yeah. they were like, I'm going to give you all types. Um, so that was definitely one. Uh, the ratkin, it talks about how they felt that they should have been the guardians at one point, but they yep. pretty much after some time just ended up going underground. And because it was that much harder to breed, and it's just easier to breed with rats than it is with humans, uh, that's why when you start seeing them, they, they look as skulky as they do. They look as ragged as they do. And it gives a, a reason behind that. But it also doesn't mean that they never stopped doing what they were meant to do in the first place. It just makes them that much more of an opposition for werewolves who probably take a look at them and go like, that's just gross. And they'll be like, chitter, 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 skank, 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 skank. And um, <laughs> it does its own thing there. Um, but that that's pretty cool to speak about there. Um, it speaks about the Macaulay, which are your well alligators, right? Um, and how they have a huge tie to their own totem, which is the dragon, and how ancient memory is their biggest thing because they remember they were around longer. Yeah. Um, and there's not that many left of them. The cool part about them in this book is it gives you the ability to choose your own adventure when it comes to crafting um, what would create your own <laughs> Macaulay, which is really cool too. Um, outside of that, then we get into our Rokia. And this is the first time seeing Rokia, but the, the interesting part about this is that unlike every other group, it tells you that they're, there's, it's not like it was of Luna or it was of the sun. It just, they were, they just always were, they, they worship the Kraken. Um, they come from the sea and they only have very, very few things to do outside of swim and eat. And like the only yep. cool party they have is, you know, like the gorging where like if a big whale comes around or a ship is sinking, then it's time for everyone to chow down. And uh, when the itis hits and you start getting that belly full and you start turning <laughs> to the side, that's when, you know, you won that. As we know, the future editions changes this and it makes them a little bit more fearsome than they were presented. Um, but this is the beginnings of where they start to show up. So that's the thing there. And lastly, we have the Anatsi along with their story of how, um, you know, they're tail weavers. And for the most part, they're able to record a lot of the history because they've been around. And they talk about how Anansi, Anansa was able to go ahead and, you know, take things from the weaver, but to also take things from the worm, but not get corrupted by it because it never swore any type of allegiance there <laughs> until it started getting cocooned and started relying on. The fact that it waited patiently for there to be a crack for it to reappear back into the world. Um, it also tells you how difficult it is to play one of these characters, which is funny because they really don't mention it that much in the Rokea section. 
but they mention it truly in the Anansi section, if only because what are you supposed to do when you don't have anyone else to back you? You know, playing a living vampire, quote unquote, for lack of a better term, um, yeah. is not it, it's not a walk in the park. So it tells you to be very careful when you start playing your changing breeds and know exactly why you're putting a lot of weight behind it. Plus, the, the politics of the Ananasi has got to be a, a bit complex all to itself, just because like they're the only changing breed to kind of have a foot in the in the door in every aspect of the triad. Mm-hmm. And it, just the uh, the infighting alone and then the the whispering and the what I'm really super excited about is is when it gets around to uh, to more in-depth stuff. Like, I'm pretty sure there's an Ananasi book. And uh, and I want to really get to that and see the interesting stuff they put in that just based alone on the entries that they have in here. This is true. This is true. Um, and then that leads us next into our next one, which is systems. Uh, what's of true importance here, folks, is the fact that once again, this book came out prior to the second edition book. So this is your bridge. Yeah. It tells you using second edition vampire books um, to work with werewolf. The problem with this, though, is, of course, that vampire is its own book. So unless you own that book. Uh, it's trying to kind of bring it in line. Fortunately, yep. um, what it does do is at least it gives you enough an idea of how combat works, of how um, certain rules translations are brought into four here. Uh, one of the things that we don't see change are the renowned system because it's still going off of a, a hundredth, 10 percentile amount <laughs> right. uh, until you right. get to the end, right? It's not even like temporary dots. So you're still counting upwards, um, but it does give you a nice bevy of, of things to work with. It updates your combat tables. It updates your weapons, your armors. There's um, really only two things to look part. at in here, right? That's Clave yep. Dueling and Kalindo. Yep. And I Kalindo. mean, let's be realistic. Um, yep. Clave Dueling, obviously the awesome, like crazy combat moves you get for uh, for for blades out, um, you know, at uh, at dawn. And then Kalindo, which is your Kung Fu, the legend continues of the of the Guru Nation. Now, the cool, interesting thing about that, obviously, is it uses shape shifting techniques uh, involved in the martial arts form. Uh, take a look at the section. You'll see some cool stuff in there. Do not sleep on the cave on the clave dueling either. Um, in the in the rule sections on that, there's some very interesting stuff. Um, it goes over computers. The, obviously, this is dated. Um, it's not going to be anywhere but near. It's so cool. It's funny oh, as hell. Geez. You know why? I'm not going to go over it a lot outside <laughs> to say that it's a good nostalgic read because of how it's presented in there and how they thought computers were going to go. So it gives you mechanics for being able to play it and what computers or how computers would operate as well in the Umbra. Yeah. Um, that's probably the biggest takeaway about that. Uh, it breaks into into aging. If you're going to make an old guru, take a look at that. Otherwise, uh, it kind of wraps it up for the section. Uh, the next section is uh, is interesting. It's uh, it's called role playing, and uh, and what it is is each of the authors here they wrote a tiny little section where they go over um, interesting subjects for you to think about um, as a player, and it all it's all like a you know out of game you know things to think about. So like how you would embrace spirituality as a player in game, um, uh, how you play as a as a member of a team, making heroic choices, not just how you die, but in how you live. Um, it changes your how to change your perspective on what the good guy is. Right. You got to remember, we're playing a game of monsters. So you got to kind of shift your shift your goal focus there and ask the ties into the next story, which is uh, how to bring fear and horror into your game and then play the monster and be comfortable with that. So it's a. Uh, it's all good stuff in there. It it looks wordy and and boring, but it's not. It's good reads. These are all basics your players should have. I'm going to stop there because I want to say, you know, like taking a look at this and seeing that this was inserted in a book where there's enough of a vignette, right? Because like right now, at least in this day and age, from the moment that we're podcasting, we've been fortunate as well that they've created anthologies for us, you know, for vampire, for werewolf, especially for those of you who 
are into, you know, the Chronicles of Darkness, they have their own anthologies as well. And that always helps to read them to get in character. When we did Dark Ages and we were doing those anthologies, imagine having a section, at least in every core book for the most part, that would be able to kind of put you in character because it it does offer you more story, more fluff, more more things for you to read on. I thought this was great. I, I thought this was like really one of the coolest things in the book, especially if you weren't used to getting it. From the core book, you at least got it from the, the player's guide. And after having read what you did, this only further reinforces the type of character you may or may not want to play. Do you think this should have probably been included in other books, too? Oh, or? The biggest, as you know, uh, one of the biggest requests we get from from fans is mm-hmm. the teach me how. Teach me how to yep. do this. Teach me how to do that. Teach me. This is literally the author's teaching you how. It's written in the book. Yep. All you have to do mm-hmm. is just kind of look at it. And it's not, uh, it's not hidden in between the lines. And it's not tiny little sections here and there. It's long, in-depth explanations going over the basic concepts of what they're going for, which is always what we're looking for when we're looking at a book. What were you thinking? Oh, obviously, it's this. Awesome. Right? No interpretation needed. Agreed. Agreed. Um, (laughs) Definitely agreed there. Um, And then, of course, uh, after taking a stroll through that, it, it, it pretty much starts landing our plane here by taking a city afterward, which is talking about the apocalypse and what the apocalypse means. The cool part about this section, folks, and not to sleep on it, is it, at this day and age when we're starting to read or think about the apocalypse, we're already gung-ho. We're treating it like Gehenna. It's going to be the end of the world, etc. However, this is the first kind of inklings that you take a look, how every tribe takes a look at the apocalypse in general. Yeah. What is their view? And what's very cool and surprising is that it's, you know, for one of the things I highlighted here was like the theory goes something like this. The apocalypse is not the worm's making, but rather a natural force that grows directly from Gaia. It's a time of great potential in which free old lock cosmological patterns create new ones. And whoever triumphs during the great universal appeal could, upheaval could shape the future for all time. The apocalypse is not so much a termination as a time of great change. It is the cauldron in which opposing sides and values vie for supremacy. Knowing that and then reading through every tribe's version of how they're racing towards the apocalypse to either A, be on top or, or B, just change the landscape so that it prepares for this next new world is amazing it's amazing because it does prove that it's not the end it's just it's just the turning of the page um and even more so i think you know this only further reinforces what we may or may not be seeing as we start getting closer to werewolf fifth edition right to see where in the apocalypse they are if at all well you got to remember this is just a theory right that uh, mm-hmm. that a lot of different tribes hold down and and definitely members in the tribe you know it's also a great way if you're in the wrong tribe to get slapped by a theurge uh, publicly at a moot <laughs> but, uh, you know, you got to there's camps that are put in this book that specifically think this and, and kind of lean toward this mentality and, uh, and and prep for it. And they they go through on, on this, you know, kind of different where where most tribes lean. But, uh, you know, obviously uh, your your physically dominant tribes, they believe it's the end of it's the end of, of time when when the apocalypse hits. So they're doing everything they can to stop it. Others like the Bonars are just trying to cry about a place for them when when the when the wheel turns as it were but uh that, that kind of wraps it up for us uh for for today so i wanted to kind of take a moment and uh and go over what your your thoughts were on the book overall i think the book for the first time reading it was really cool there's a couple of things that you obviously see a little bit as cheesy definitely dated but there's a lot of good nuggets of information in here um, the biggest ones for me were definitely the role playing section because I think every player should have this. I, in fact, I, I wish it was like in every book a little bit more extended. If there were a Kickstarter for it, I would totally pay more money just to have this kind of written into every <laughs> book. Um, the camps are definitely a good uh, opening uh, to be able to see it 
um, being able to have more information on your tribes outside of what you currently see as like a just get you playing in your core book was also a really, really interesting thing to see. Yeah, I uh, I, I can't uh, I can't talk well about this book enough. Uh, just on the aspects of the of the cool things they introduced here that we just haven't seen clarifications on moots, um, you know, like uh, different ideas for cairns, uh, in depth talk about the the, the different tribes. Um, obviously, there's cool gifts in here. Obviously, there's cool rights in here. You know, they're trying to sell a book. Of course, they're going to put stuff like that in here. But the core fundamentals of it, which are things that it, it, tools that it equips your player with to to you know like uh, to, to play a better game. It it's a uh, it's uh, irreplaceable in that aspect, I think. So this is a this is a cool framework. If this is what you know we're going to be looking for for like players' guides and, and things in the future, I'm super excited about it. This I this I think is a uh, is a uh, is is great. I think this is a this is a great book. Agreed, agreed. But uh, you know that's going to wrap it up for us. We're 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 definitely over time. Um, we're, we're definitely because we you know we can talk on for a bit. Uh, it's not just Bob who's got that capability. Um, but, uh, we're gonna, we're gonna wrap it up here. We're gonna join you guys next week, um, where we're going to be pulling together, uh, cults of the blood gods and, uh, and taking a look at that. And then, uh, and then the week after that, I'll be back from vacation joining us. So, uh, I look forward to seeing y'all then. Yep. Thank you folks. Take it easy. Thank you for listening to our 25 years of vampire, the masquerade podcast. If you liked what you heard, please reach out and let us know on Twitter at 25 years of VTM at our email, info at 25yearsvtm.com, on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash 25yearsvtm, or on our website, www.25yearsvtm.com. If you would like to support us, we can be found at patreon.com slash 25 years of vampire the masquerade.